This morning we're going to take a look at the study of God and who God is through a story in the Old Testament. Forty years ago this week, for the first time in the history of the United States, a president resigned and left the White House in disgrace. Brought down by actions surrounding his own cover-up of a botched burglary by political operatives in a Washington, D.C. hotel called Watergate. The demise of Richard Nixon was in large measure due to corruption emanating from his own delusions regarding his own power in the presidency. Just 16 years ago this coming week, another president of our country, Bill Clinton, admitted to a grand jury that he had an inappropriate sexual relationship with a White House intern. Eventually, he was impeached by the House of Representatives on one charge of abuse of power and one charge of perjury, and then acquitted by the Senate. Both votes were largely along party lines. Well, there's nothing new under the sun, the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us. Political power, corruption, sexual relationships, and their cover-up have resulted in the fall of many men from power and the loss of respect and authority in the eyes of their countrymen. It is an old story, a story we will see in our scripture passage today, but one with a twist that points us to God's free gift of grace when only judgment and wrath for sin are deserved. I invite you to turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 11 in your Bibles. 2 Samuel and the 11th chapter. Your bulletin says 2 Samuel 12. We'll get there. We want to do the background in chapter 11 first. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Um, I don't have much of an outline for you this morning. I've just titled the two chapters. Chapter 11 is King David at his worst. Up to this point in the story of 1 and 2 Samuel, we have seen King David portrayed in an almost universally, universally positive light. He is the slayer of Goliath. He is a great warrior. He is the one who graciously spares Saul's life, even though Saul repeatedly tries to kill him. Yes, David is a decidedly different kind of king. He's a man after God's own heart, but not here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Here he has forgotten God's grace. Here we see him at his worst. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. There's a slight hint of criticism in the scripture here. It's springtime. This is when kings go out to battle, when kings go out to lead their men to war. But David stays in Jerusalem. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him 
and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Verse 3, we read her name is Bathsheba. It is used here, but not again until the end of chapter 12. And no, for most of the next two chapters, and even in the New Testament, she is simply called the wife of Uriah. We are told very little about her except she is beautiful, very attractive, and that she was seduced. We might wonder if she participated in the seduction or if she is simply manipulated by a king at the height of his power and influence, a victim of royal charisma, of royal power. But the text says nothing. It keeps the focus and the emphasis on David and his sin. For this is the account of David and his rule as king. Verse 4 makes it clear that she was not pregnant before the adulterous act and leads to verse 5 where she makes it very clear the baby is David's child. I am pregnant are Bathsheba's only recorded words regarding this situation. Now with the fact of a pregnant mother and baby on the way revealed, we see the grand conspiracy of a cover-up begin to unfold. We will see David not only as a lustful and adulterous man, but also as one who is intoxicated by power. Starting in verse 6, David begins an extended effort to manipulate the levers of political and military might to arrange events using his power as king and head of the military to advance and cover up his own sin. This is corruption of the highest degree. Verse 6. So David sent word to Joab. Joab's the commander of David's army. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. Notice Uriah isn't even born an Israelite. He is a Hittite. He is a follower of the one true God. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. Well, David starts this out as kind of a, how are things going, Uriah, conversation. But pretty quickly, he tells Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Wash your feet is, is an expression that that's what they did in ancient times before they went to bed. He's encouraging Uriah to go home and spend some time with his wife. As a matter of fact, David sends a present to them, a present that most commentators believe is designed to enhance the romantic evening for the couple as they come together. Verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. David's first attempt at covering up his sin has failed. Verse 10. 
When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, he brings him in for a little more consultation. Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booze, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah's sense of duty and loyalty to the Lord and his fellow soldiers won't let him go have a few days of rest and relaxation with his wife. Well, the second attempt now of David to cover up his sin has failed. The whole point of this is to get Uriah to go home and have marital relations with his wife and thus cover up the sin David had committed with her to make Uriah and the whole world think that this baby is Uriah's and not David's and thus conceal the adulterous affair instigated by David. The cover-up goes on. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Well, failing in his first attempt to get Uriah to go home with his wife and then failing to persuade Uriah to go to his house for the night, David tries strategy number three. Let's get Uriah drunk, all right? Let's get him so that he is, his defenses are, are let down, fog his thinking, weaken his resolve and his sense of loyalty and duty and get him home with his wife. The result? David fails a third time to cover up his sin. Well, you might think at this point that David would give up. We would hope that David would own up to what he's done and repent of his sin. After all, he's been portrayed, portrayed as this great king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. Not now. Not here. Not then. He is a king, and there is nothing that is going to stop him in his ambition to cover this up. David thinks he is in control of the situation, and that leads him to a fourth option, an almost unthinkable option. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. 
Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobeshus? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Joab is telling the messenger, when David starts to criticize us for all the men that we lost, just tell him Uriah the Hittite is dead. Well, David's fourth, final, and deadly plan to cover up his sin is carried out. This is nothing less than the premeditated murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. David's plan was viciously sinful. He used Uriah's honorable character, his traits of loyalty and bravery to his lord, to the king, to his own men, and to his country to kill him to murder Uriah. Verse 22. So the messengers went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messengers said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. Huh. Joab was a well-qualified and expert military commander. He knew what he had done. And literally, what... David says to tell Joab is do not let this matter be evil in your eyes. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. What hypocrisy we have here from David. Joab knows what David has just done, and David knows how it might affect Joab's opinion of and even loyalty towards him. And what wise and sensitive counsel does David offer as justification of what he's just done? Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. That's ruthless. That's heartless. That's cold. It's cold-blooded murder. It's justified by David as just one more cheap death on the battlefield. Yet David is not done with his cover-up just yet. There is one more loose end to take care of. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, probably about seven days, when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. 
The wife of Uriah, now widowed and pregnant, is in a desperate place. She might tell her story. So David takes her as his wife, protects her, takes care of her. The cover-up is now complete. David must be thinking, I've done it. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba is married. The baby will be born and no one will know. David has everything in control. He's pulled it off. Home free. Notice something has been missing from this entire chapter so far. Not once in the chapter has God been mentioned. Until the very last sentence of the very last verse of the chapter. Look at it. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, the thing that David had done was evil in the Lord's eyes. Get the connection between what David said to Joab in verse 25. Do not let this matter be evil in your eyes. And in verse 27, we are told, but the thing that David had done was evil in the Lord's eyes. One sentence sums up the whole ugly incident, doesn't it? This is evil in the Lord's eyes. What displeased the Lord here? David looking on Bathsheba with lust in his heart. David summoning her to his chamber. David having intimate relations with her. All to please and pleasure himself. To gratify his own desires. This was all bad enough, but there is more. And even worse, the Lord is displeased with David plotting to cover up his sin with David killing Uriah, with David using Joab as an instrument of murder, of David trying to persuade Joab to think well of him, despite all his evil acts. In chapter 11, at the pinnacle of his achievements as king, David succumbs to temptation and we see one sinful choice lead to another and lead to another. It's a downward spiral, a vicious cycle of sin upon sin upon sin that leads to more, ever more devastating consequences for David and those around him who are the victims of his sinfulness. At the end of chapter 11, who does David remind you of? Which king does David remind you of in chapter 11? He reminds us of Saul, doesn't he? He reminds us of Saul. He's ruthless, heartless, selfish, looking out for number one, for only himself, at the expense of everyone and everything else. This is first and foremost rebellion against God by David. He has forgotten God. God is nowhere to be found in David's mind in these things. That brings us to chapter 12, verses 1 to 14. I've titled this section, God's Intense Grace Upon David. God's intense 
grace upon David. Intense, strong, fierce, passionate grace of God is seen here in chapter 11. First in the person of Nathan the prophet. David may think this episode of sordid sin is behind him, but the Lord will not let him go on this path of folly. Rather, the Lord reaches out and through Nathan cunningly approaches David. Not with a frontal assault, not screaming at him with names like adulterer and murderer, but with a story fit for the sovereign king of a nation to judge. After all, the king is the one who is to embody justice in the nation, to embody justice before his people. He is to promote good and he is to punish evil. The grace of the Lord is so intense here that it even pursues and exposes the sinner in his sin. Let's see David's abundant grace, or God's abundant grace even in this. Verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. You see, David does not recognize it yet. But in Nathan's story, the rich man represents David. The poor man is Uriah, and the lamb is Bathsheba. The prophet continues, and he, that is the poor man, brought it up, the lamb. And it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. You see, the rich man stealing the poor man's lamb and slaughtering it represents David taking Uriah's wife and committing adultery with her. And verse 5. What is David's response? Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. David passes judgment on this rich man. And then he even describes the the restitution that will be made. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David's sentence on the rich man in the story is revealing. For in the law of Moses, the penalty for adultery and murder is death for, for the perpetrator. David is in effect pronouncing a death sentence upon himself here and claiming that it is God's will that it be so. He says, as the Lord lives, he shall be put to death. In verse 6, David says something that is also in the law of Moses. If you stole a man's sheep, you were required to provide four sheep as restitution. Perhaps there is an allusion here to the untimely death of four of David's sons in the following chapters. Verse 7, at the end of David's pronouncements, Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is the punchline. You are the man. 
This is the pivot point, the center of these two chapters. God is working His grace through Nathan, who had essentially sucker-punched David. David didn't see it coming. David didn't have time to conspire or defend or excuse or rationalize his cover-up here, did he? No, Nathan says, let me tell you a story, O king. And Nathan leads him down the path of conviction of sin. But God isn't done. David may be stunned, but God brings even more to bear upon his soul. Nathan continues, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Nathan, with the power of God in his voice, declares to David that he is guilty. David is the man. He is as guilty as the man's in Nathan's story. Yes, even more so. For look at the blessings God has rained down on David. The Lord gave him everything that had been Saul's as king and even more. And how has David responded to the Lord's blessings? You see, God's strategy executed through Nathan's voice demonstrates the intensity and the ingenuity of God's grace. It miraculously, God miraculously reaches places where we can't imagine God's grace can go. It can convict a king of sin and lead him to repentance. One commentator said, Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David even knew Nathan had a sword. I like that. That is the holy craftiness of God's grace. If God determines to bring you back to repentance, what chance do you have against sovereign grace like that? That grace is more than amazing. It is intense. It is fierce. It is passionate. It is the grace of God in action for those He loves. Well, now that God has graciously exposed David's sin the Lord will drive to the core of David's sin in verses 9 and 10. Why did David do this? The core of David's sin is not in what he did, but in what was in his heart. Verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Twice in these verses, God tells David he sinned against him and ruined the lives of these people because you have despised me. You treated me with contempt. You treated me as if I was nothing before you, as if I didn't matter. Well, as God is making clear to David, he does matter. This is the gracious God who sends Nathan to call David to repentance. And the intense God who is outraged that his servant has despised him. 
We will not understand, let alone appreciate the greatness of God's grace unless we understand something of his intense, passionate righteousness, his holiness, his justice. When God speaks of his salvation in the Bible, he often also speaks of his judgment. We can't know the love of his grace apart from understanding his holiness and judgment and thus justice. So too here, when Nathan tells David, the sword shall never depart from your house, God is saying that the sword brought against Uriah, that sword will not depart from your family either, David. Thus three of David's sons, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, will suffer early and violent deaths. Now at the end of verse 11, or at the end of verse 10, and at the beginning of verse 11, God pronounces the punishment for David's crimes. There are earthly consequences. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will take up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. As you read further in 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, you would see the following sexual and violent sins with its consequences in David's family. David has brought sexual sin, adultery, and murder into his family. This is a story of much painful tragedy. David's son Amnon rapes David's daughter Tamar. David's son Absalom murders Amnon for raping his sister Tamar. David's son Absalom fosters a rebellion against David leading a coup to depose David from his throne. And in a move of public humiliation, Absalom, David's son, takes David's harem for his own. And even after David's death, a stench of murder lingered in David's family as David's son, King Solomon, has David's son, Adonijah, killed, thereby eliminating him as a rival to the throne. But what is David's response to all this? Verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Simply that. Simply, I have sinned against the Lord. There are no excuses. David confesses his sin and repents immediately. This is so unlike Saul. Saul debated. He rationalized and continued down his sinful path of folly when confronted with his sin by Samuel. But David is a sinner and he knows it. He acknowledges it and he turns from his sin. David knows his sin is not rooted in his behavior. Rather, it is rooted in a rebellious heart, a heart that turns away from the Lord, a heart that forgets about God. In Psalm 51, verse 10, we read this for Scripture reading, we get some insight into David's sin as in his repentance he cries to the Lord with the words, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Nathan now responds with God's grace. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. 
you shall not die. David's sin is forgiven. And the sentence of death, which he rightly deserved to pay, is put aside. It's the grace of God. We see the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness of God. This is the gospel here. David deserved God's wrath. He deserved his punishment. But in dependence upon God and without excuse, David repents before God, confesses his sin, and turns from it. And God forgives. He is compassionate. God gives grace. God loves, despite the fact that David has despised him. David is a great sinner, a great, great, great sinner, as we have seen. But God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness is greater than David's sin. I have witnessed to people, presented the gospel to people who have responded with, I've sinned too much to be forgiven. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. God even graciously spares David from the sentence of death that he deserved. But he did not spare him from the death of the child. David will not die, but someone will. Verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Here the Lord forgives the guilt of sin in David, but he does not spare him the consequences. For David, God's forgiveness was marvelous but costly. The child would die. It is as if the child will die in place of David as you read the Scripture. Nathan had assured David he would not die, but a death would occur. There is a pattern here. The paradox of the gospel of Christ and the grace of God is that forgiveness in Christ is free, but at the same time it is so very costly. Our passage this morning started with Israel's beloved king, God's chosen king, scheming to take another man's wife and then after repeatedly failing to cover it up, conspiring to take that man's life. These things are not there to arouse our interest and spice up the story. The purpose is not to provide some kind of mature audiences only entertainment. You see, this is the ugly part of the story. It is the part of the story that the entire Bible tells from beginning to end, from the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis to the judgments in Revelation. It is the part of the story that shows us who we really are. God tells us here we are sinners. And even the best of kings can fall into deep sin. We ought to learn the lesson. Be careful. Keep our eyes focused on Christ. Do not forget Him. Do not despise Him. Do not think little of Him.
For sin is crouching at the door and waiting for us. Our adversary, the devil, seeks to devour us. It is so easy for us to take for granted our spiritual position before the Lord. Yet we are so easily tempted. Our minds so easily drift and drawn astray. And as the picture painted here, one sin leads to another sin leads to another sin. It's a vicious cycle. But there is hope. God gives more grace. God gives more grace. God is gracious. He doesn't just put a mask on ugly sin and its consequences, but rather the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah and Nathan reveals that we are sinners. But in the midst of that, God pursues us with His intense grace. God sends Nathan. God convicts David of his sin. God brings him to repentance. He forgives him. He restores him. He rescues him. So too. So too, we are the recipients of the grace of God. Even as we sin against Him, He calls us to dependence upon Him and repentance. He calls us to trust in Him in the midst of this ugly and broken world. In the midst of our own personal sin, He calls us to Himself. For He loves us. And it's with that grace that He intensely pursues us. You see, turning from sin and trusting in the good news that Jesus saves sinners isn't just the one-time inaugural experience that happens at the moment of salvation. Although it is that. But it is also the daily walk of the Christian life. The Gospel is for every day and every moment. We must come to the cross daily, Jesus told us in Luke chapter 9. We must die to self and live to Him daily, moment by moment. Listen again to the words of repentance from David in Psalm 51. Hear Him come before God in prayer as a beggar pleading for God's mercy, forgiveness, and grace. Psalm 51, verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Verse 12, Restore me to the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Our rebellious, sinful hearts meet with the beauty of God's intense grace in the gospel of His Son. A gospel deep enough to forgive all the massive sins of a king 
and the sins of beggars like us and close us in his righteousness. Let us pray. Oh God, you are our maker and creator. You are our salvation. Lord, your intense and fierce grace has been poured out upon us, calling us from the depths of our sin, from being dead in our trespasses and sins, convicting us of our sin, causing us to turn from our sin and come to you. It is a great gift of your grace, Lord. I pray, Father, we would not despise it, that we would not think little of it, that we would not count you as small, God, but that we would see you as a big God, as a great God, as an awesome God, as the wonderful God who loved us so much that despite our sin, you forgive in Christ. Christ died for our sins. It is an amazing truth, Father. Humble us this morning before it. As individuals and as our church, Father, I pray we would have broken and contrite hearts before You. We need You, Lord. We need Your grace. We need Your compassion and Your care. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.